Corinthians chapter 9. In a minute we'll read verses 1 to 18, so you can turn there. This morning in Pocatello and Chubbuck, probably two dozen churches are meeting that have paid pastors. Pastors that don't have another outside job, that the work of ministry is their full-time vocation. Um, they're paid to set, a time, set aside time to study, to meet with people, to counsel, to prepare, to teach, to administrate the logistics of church life. But should they be paid? Does that cheapen ministry um, or make it a commodity to be bought and sold? Would it be better if churches are solely run by volunteers? Our passage this morning addresses that question, addresses that topic of whether pastors should be paid. And I want to acknowledge at the very beginning the awkwardness of me teaching on this. <laughs> it feels way more awkward than the passages on sex and marriage and divorce that we've covered lately. Obviously, it feels self-serving. I mean, after all, I'm in a paid pastoral role. It feels a bit like a parent talking to their kids about you know, what the Bible says about children uh, respecting their parents, and the child thinks, well, this is awfully convenient for you, right? Um, it, it feels that way. It confirms some people's suspicions that pastors are only in it for the money. And certainly people are rightly bothered by accounts of lavish lifestyles of celebrity pastors or TV evangelists with you know, a $5 million jet that they're trading in for a $20 million jet to fly around to various homes. We're rightly bothered by those things. And so to hear a message on this, it confirms some people's suspicions that that is kind of what pastors are in it for. And yet we teach this passage simply because it's the next one in the text. We're working our way through 1 Corinthians. And so the, the benefit of that is it just forces us to deal with every passage as it comes. We don't get to skip over the awkward ones, even if they're more awkward for me, you know, perhaps than for you. We just keep working through it. And it's a relevant topic. As I mentioned, even in our own community, probably two dozen churches are, are functioning this way. And, and there's others, though, that have unpaid volunteers, other churches that have unpaid volunteers uh, handling all of it, either by necessity, because perhaps they're small and, and, and that's, uh, they're not able to uh, financially afford it, or by choice, uh, by conviction. They think that that is the right way to go. So are all these churches, ours included, with paid staff, are they in error to do so? Are there times and situations in which a pastor should not be paid for his ministry? These are relevant questions for church life. They're relevant to you if you're faithfully giving to the work of a local church and you want to know, is that good stewardship of the money that I'm giving for a church to use it in that way to, to pay staff members rather than rely on volunteers? But this passage doesn't just drop in here in the middle of the letter. It's actually a continuation of a theme that we saw last week. So, so last week, the theme that came up in this somewhat unusual situation of our believers, are they able to eat this meat that had been sacrificed to idols? And, and if you were here last week, what you would have seen is there's freedom to do that because the idols are nothing. He says they're nothing. Um, but you might limit that liberty, set aside that freedom out of love for other brothers or sisters who, 
who are bothered by that and are tempted by that and it wounds their conscience. And so you might have freedom, but you may set aside that freedom out of love for these other brothers or sisters. And it's actually the same thing that's communicated here. Paul will give 14 verses explaining why he has freedom to receive a salary, essentially. Why, why, why he would have a, a freedom, and he even uses the word right to that. And then he gives four verses on why he is willingly setting aside that freedom. Well, why he has set that aside for the sake of the gospel. And, and, and so it's the same principle applied to a new scenario. Freedom, but willing to set aside that freedom, in this case, for the sake of the gospel. This is instructive for church life, but it also gives principles for other scenarios in which we might not want to insist upon our rights. We might have a right to a certain thing, and yet we might set aside that right for a greater goal. Let me read this now. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we'll read verses 1 to 18. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sakes? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use that right. But we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services at the food, uh, eat the food of the temple? And those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. But I have used none of these things. And I am not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case. For it would be better for me to die than to have any man make my boast an empty one. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. What then is my reward, that when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel? Two parts this breaks down into. Then the first is his defense of freedom to be supported in the ministry. In 14 verses, he makes that case in a few different ways. And he uses a series of questions. In fact, 
there's 18 questions that run through these 18 verses. Uh, not necessarily one in each verse, I'm packed together there, where he's working through the logic of this. And his first point is that it was practiced by the other apostles. This would be one that does not as much directly relate to missionaries and pastors today because the role of apostle was unique to this establishment of the early church. It was a foundational office to lay the groundwork for these churches that would, be, would, would come up. It, it, it was true of an apostle that they would have seen the risen Christ. And he asked that question in there, so he's making the point. In verse 1, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? It was a characteristic of these early apostles, that they were eyewitnesses. His first question, though, am I not free, it ties in with their emphasis on freedom. And if you've been with us these weeks and months that we've been looking at 1 Corinthians, that's come up over and over again, where they're wanting to argue for their freedom, you know, freedom to eat meat sacrificed to idols, freedom in marriage or different situations, uh, freedom e even in inappropriate ways to not deal with certain sin in their midst and over and over again, he's had to say, yes, there's freedom in some areas, but you're misusing it. And so he comes back to a theme that they would have been hitting on often of this freedom. And he says, I, I, am I not free? Free in this case to, to be supported? And he goes on, and he, even if others were to downplay his apostleship, surely they wouldn't. Because he says in the end of verse 1, are, are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship. His point there is that others might downplay his ministry, but surely they wouldn't. Because that, that church was planted through his efforts. He, he came to them, we read in Acts chapter 18, when there was perhaps only one or two believers that were there also ministering. Uh, and, and he came and he spent a year and a half there. And he shared the gospel in synagogues and in homes. And he received opposition, but some turned to Christ. And over those 18 months, he established this fledgling church. So he says, surely you wouldn't doubt that this is a ministry that the Lord has given me. That's why he calls them his seal of his apostleship. A seal is something that would have been placed on a document to show the authenticity of it. And he says, you, you guys are like that. Even if somebody else doubts my apostleship, you, you've, you've seen the way the Lord has worked in your midst. Surely you wouldn't doubt that. And he goes on to make a point that the other apostles are being supported. And so he says in verse 4, do, do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? He says these, these other apostles that you know of, you're, you're supporting. And, and so I, I could, I, I could ask for that if I wanted to, is the point that he's making. Even to be able to provide for a family, he says if I wanted to to marry and bring along a believing wife. That would be appropriate. He's not talking about generating wealth from this. In fact, he uses a phrase that just talks about just the substance needed for living. Do we not have a right to eat and drink in verse 4? Isn't there a right to, to be provided at least to, to meet our needs? And then he goes on and he gives... 
three examples of different workers who are, who are paid. And it was assumed that they would be, that it would be customary to. So look at verse 7. It says, who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of the fruit of it? Who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? Uh, a soldier doesn't fight during the day and then have to, to have another job in the evening to meet their needs. Right? They're, they're, they're provided for that. And even if it's something that is a, like a part-time role, um, like the National Guard or something, they're compensated in that part-time role. And then if they are deployed, then... Presumably, they would, be, they would be provided for during that time. So he makes the point of a, of a soldier that way, of a farmer who's working in the vineyard and eats from what grows of that, or a shepherd working in the fields and, and eating from, from these animals. So he points to something that they would have assumed, that in these other areas where people are laboring, that they're compensated for it. And then he turns to biblical principle. In verses 8 to 12. So he goes from these other things that they wouldn't doubt, other forms of labor. And then he says, I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? In other words, he says, it's not my authority of just kind of human judgment, this is what's reasonable. We don't make cases that way, and we shouldn't either. It's, it's what does the Lord say? What does the word say? That's our authority. So he says, does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. That comes out of Deuteronomy 25.4, that, that verse. You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. And in the original context, what that would have referred to was a way of breaking off the, the heads, the kernels from the wheat, so that it could be ground up and used for, for flour. And so the, the stalks and the, the wheat heads with the husk around it would be on the ground of a threshing floor and one way that they would break it up is they would put this heavy sled, heavy wooden sled and they'd tie it behind an ox and the ox would pull it around and it would push down on all that grain and it would break it up so that they could separate the grain from the rest of it. And it would have been tough for an animal walking over that all the time doing that labor to not be able to eat from it. And so he says don't don't muzzle, don't put something to cover its mouth while he's doing that, that as he's working, he ought to be able to be provided for through that. Uh, but Paul says, God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Not that God doesn't care about the well-being of animals. In fact, there's passages throughout the Old Testament that speak about compassionate care of, of animals. But he's arguing from this lesser to the greater. He says, that, yes, God cares about animals, but does he not care about people even more? And so if this was true of animals, should it not be even more so of, of people? So verse 10, he says, or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written. So this wasn't primarily just for oxen. It was an application principle for, for people. Martin Luther, he joked on this. He said, this was not written because of the oxen, because they don't know how to read. Um, and so he said, it's, it's not just for oxen, it's people. There's a principle here for, for people. And so he quotes it here. He quotes this also in 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 18, another passage that would support this. And it says, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. And then he quotes this same passage again. For the scripture says, 
you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Qu- quick side note here that's interesting on this. This is New Testament passage, 1 Timothy 5. It's quoting an Old Testament verse and quoting the words of Jesus here that we would find in Luke. And he says they're, they're scripture. So this is, this is a nugget passage that affirms the equal authority and view of Scripture, both the Old and New Testament, uh, even within the New Testament itself. So he's arguing this uh, again, that it would be appropriate. Others were exercising the right to be supported, he says here, um, but they had set it aside. Uh, he, he'd set it aside, as he's going to make a point here in a moment, but, but they, were, they were supporting others. Um, and so he says it would be appropriate if I were to raise support in this way. But notice what he, what he, what he goes on to say, because this starts to hint ahead at what his main point's going to be in the verses to come. It says, verse 12, If others share this right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. He's, he's making this point then, that yes, I, I, I could receive support from you, but I'm, but I'm choosing not to because I don't want to make a hindrance to the gospel of Christ. And so in this situation, I'm choosing not to receive support. In fact, what he was doing, we read in Acts chapter 18, as he came and he worked another job to, to be free to be able to minister to them. In Acts 18, verses 1 to about 18 is where it describes this whole ministry in Corinth. But this is when he first got there. He says, after these things, we, he left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them. Aquila and, and Priscilla. Skipped over some parts there for, for shortness. He stayed with them and they were working. For by trade, they were tent makers. That was his vocation, was to make tents. And so when he first came there, uh, and during his time there, I believe he labored in this so, so that he could minister without being a burden to them and raising support from them. And so sometimes today, if a, if a pastor or a missionary going into the field take a similar approach, we call that a tent-making ministry because they are working another job to, to be able to support and provide for their needs. And it comes from this reference. So he says these, this would follow biblical principle. It, he goes on to say it would fit the pattern of the priests in Israel. Look at verse 13. Or do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple? And those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? The work of a priest in, in Israel, and in fact the whole tribe of Levi was a, it's a full-time labor. It, 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 it required them to, to give of themselves to the temple and, and, and not try to split those duties with, with working in a field. And, 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 and so they were, they were provided for through the other tribes so that they could continue to do that. But there were times when that, when that stopped. And one incident of that is in Nehemiah. And so Nehemiah, this this leader of the people, he, he hears about this and he, he hears that the work of the temple basically had stopped because, because this wasn't happening. So he's also discovered that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. So the Levites and the singers who performed the service had gone away, each to his own field. And he, he goes on and 
describes how he reprimands them because this work of the temple, he wants it to continue. And, and so he called them to, to, to come back to this practice of providing for the priests so that this work of the temple could, could continue. Uh, the idea of the support then here for priests was to free them up to do the work entrusted to them. And that should be the same heart behind supporting missionaries that are out in the field that we're, uh, we're sending overseas that we want them to to be able to just give their time to the labor there and, and not be worried about kind of meeting their financial needs. And so it's, it's good for a church to, to provide for that. And we, we try to, to really look for ways to support our missionaries well that we send to the field. We, we've, in recent years, worked on a strategy of giving more money to fewer missionaries so that we can support them well and give them the resources they need to labor in the field. And the idea would be similar to, to pastoral labor. Um, the, the idea is not that my ministry is somehow more important than the other elders on our board, but just that we want to set aside some time, in this case a, a few people in our body, that, that can give more time to the work of the local church. Um, all of our elders share authority and shepherding and leadership. So if you're not familiar with our leadership structure, we, we have a board of elders, and currently we have, we have five, of which I'm, I'm one, and the other four we would refer to as lay elders. And what that means is that it's not their vocation. They're not, it's not a paid position for them. Um, but all five of us have equal authority, equal responsibility in shepherding. The, the reality of it is that not everybody can give equal time. Landon's got another job, right? You know, Martin is doing other work. Brandon has another job. Norris is retired, but he's very busy as a retired guy, right? And, and so the, the reason churches like ours have functioned this way is, is, is to, to be able to have somebody give a little bit more time to, to studying and counseling and administration and, and stuff like that. And, and yet that, that authority is still equal amongst us. So he makes a point that it follows this pattern of the priests in the Old Testament setting aside time so that they can do this work of ministry. And I think he makes the point, I think it's the best way to take verse 14, that it was supported by Jesus himself. So look at verse 14. He says, So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. I think this is a reference to Luke chapter 10 where Jesus sent out 70 to, to go out two by two to the various villages in which he was going to go and, and, and kind of begin to prepare the way. And he says, hey, not, not to take along supplies with you, but stay in various homes as you're there. And, and then he says in verse 7, stay in that house eating and drinking what they give you for the laborer is worthy of his wages. And so I think in verse 14, that's probably what it's a reference to. So he makes this case over 14 verses, but then he gets to the real point he wants to make. And he says, yes, there's be freedom here, but I have not used any of these things. I've used none of these things. There would be freedom to be supported, but he says there's also freedom to voluntarily limit that. This freedom is voluntarily limited for the sake of the gospel. He says, I've used none of these things. After vigorously defending the right to, to make a living from the ministry, he vigorously defends his choice not to. 
And there's something that's it's a little bit ironic here for us. Because it seems like, not just in this passage, but when we look to 2 Corinthians, he has to deal with this again. Because it seems like he was getting pr- pressure from them to be supported later. And they're offended that he's not receiving support from them. I, I don't have these on the PowerPoint, but if you'd like to flip there, you can, or I can just read it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 7 to 9, so this is another letter he wrote later to the same people, dealing with many of the same issues. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we see that they were sort of attacking him in some ways and his, his weaknesses and various failings. And so in verse 6, he says, Even if I am unskilled in speech... I'm not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way we have made this evident to you in all things. He's, perhaps they were attacking him as not being particularly eloquent, which would make sense given some other things that he'd said. And all of us, pastors included, would have many weaknesses that would limit what we do. And, and so he's acknowledging that. But then in verse 7 he says, Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. Not that he actually robbed other churches, but he's saying they're providing for me, but I I haven't been receiving that from you because I've chosen not to. Verse 9, and when I was present with you and I was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need, and in everything I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. And then flip to chapter 12, verse 13. It says, for in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches? Except that I myself did not become a burden to you. Forgive me this wrong. I think that's kind of sarcasm there. He's saying, when what were you different? Well, just that I've been receiving support from others, but I've chosen not to from you. You know, forgive me for this, he says. Here for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden to you. For do not seek what is yours, but you. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? You have to understand a little bit about the dynamics of maybe how they would have viewed him. So in the Roman world, a traveling philosopher, teacher, and then they would kind of put Paul in that camp because of this, you know, they're a newer church and a, Roman area, they would kind of put Paul in that area as a traveling minister. They were, they they met their needs in one of four ways. Either they would charge fees for their teaching, so a philosopher could come into town, kind of set up a meeting place, charge people to come listen. It could stay in the home of a wealthy person, like a, a patronage, where this one wealthy person is providing for them and supporting them and letting them stay with them. They could beg on the streets, and some would, or they could work in a trade that would allow them to to meet their needs. And it was, the last one was least common, the one that Paul was taking, the approach that Paul was taking, but it was generally acknowledged that it gave them more freedom because they weren't indebted to others in any way. They, apparently, as we get to 2 Corinthians, didn't like that Paul was taking that approach. Perhaps because it made him seem less prestigious, and so it made them look less prestigious. 
We see that was a concern of theirs um, from what we've already seen in 1 Corinthians. Perhaps because they didn't feel like they had as much influence over him in that way. They didn't like it. And so now he goes from defending his right to be supported to defending his choice not to be supported. And he says it here that he's doing this because he doesn't want to hinder the gospel. But notice he says, I'm not writing these things, verse 15, back to 1 Corinthians 9. I'm not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case. He says, I'm not writing you this so that you'll start supporting me. And likely, likewise, I'm not preaching this so that I'll get a raise, right? <laughs> Uh, honestly, this is, this is, there was a lot of reasons I wanted to preach 1 Corinthians this year. This was a reason I didn't want to, <laughs> to cover this passage. So, so don't take this as like manipulation or something. It's just handling the text that's here. So he said, I'm not saying this so that you'll start supporting me. For it would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. He said, I'm not doing this to get rich. I'm not doing this so that you'll pay me. He says, no, I am am under compulsion to do this. Paul was specifically called by the Lord and set aside for this, this ministry. We see this in Acts chapter 9. Paul is converted and on the road to Damascus and goes from being one who, who persecutes the church and tries to imprison and even kill believers to, to being one of them. And the Lord here says to somebody else who's supposed to go to him, he says, go for he, that is Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Paul was this this chosen instrument set aside for this specific ministry. He's not doing this because he wants to get a paycheck from them. It is is under compulsion, he says. Later in the book, in chapter 13, before he's about to begin his series of missionary journeys, while they're ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, which is another name for Paul, for the work to which I have called them. They were called to this. They were set apart to this. And so when he says, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel, it's not just this subjective sense of he just really likes to do it. And so it's, it's sad for him if he can't. It's like, no, he, he's been given a particular ministry and he must be faithful to it. But he doesn't want their misunderstanding on this financial matter to be a confusion there. He doesn't want them to think that he came into their midst because he wants a paycheck He doesn't want that to cloud the work of the gospel that he's doing there. And and so, in similar ways, there might be other situations in which it would be wise for a a pastor or a missionary or a church planter to to say from the outset that he's going to forego any any salary there. He's going into a new area where there are not already a church, and he doesn't want them to think that he's just some kind of financial grifter wanting to get from them. Uh, perhaps in a small church, a rural area, where they're not in a position to be able to support a pastor full-time, it would be very appropriate for somebody to volunteer their time or to, uh, to, to work what we call a, a bivocational ministry where they have a, another job that's meeting their financial needs so that they can minister to there without being a burden on the church. Very appropriate. Uh, we've got a small church up in Arbon Valley that 
several men from our church, Martin's one, uh, Harley at times, um, Norris, rotate through uh, preaching up there because it's a small body. They don't have the ability to, to provide for a full-time pastor. And so it's, it's great and it's appropriate for these guys to, to give their time and serve in that way. So there's a lot of situations in which a similar choice like this might be made. He goes on to say that he serves then not for this reward from them, but from the Lord. Verse 17, for if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. Against his will, not in that he's unwilling, but that... Again, he's been entrusted this from the Lord, and he wants to be faithful to that. What then is my reward? He says that when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. He says, I'm willing to set this aside for the sake of the gospel. Next week, we'll see that he goes on to expand this through the rest of the chapter even more broadly. And about how he's becoming all things to all people, if possible, that he might win them to Christ. That the driving goal is the gospel and the spread of the gospel. And so he doesn't want this question of a salary to be a distraction in any way. Well, what's some application from this? Like I said, it's a passage that's instructive for church life. But for all of us, it should cause us to ask the question again that we did last week. What rights or freedoms am I willing to set aside for the sake of the gospel? What rights or freedoms am I willing to give up for love for another brother or sister? In chapter 8, that we saw last week, it was the issue of food. And he comes to the conclusion, if food causes my brother to stumble... If, if this choice that I'm making about something as insignificant as food leads somebody else into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. It was freedom but limited by love. And, and then now, it's freedom. We did not use this right, which is a, the word behind that. It's actually could be translated right or freedom. Um, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Specific application here, he says, to him uh, raising a salary, but broad for all of us as believers. What rights do we have that at times we should set aside for the sake of the gospel? Maybe it's a dispute with your neighbor over perhaps a property issue or, or something, and you could insist upon your rights, and you would be right to do so, and there might be times to do that, but, but you know it's going to just create an enemy there. And you might say, you know, I've been trying to share Christ with this person. I'm going to set aside that right, even though I could pursue it for the sake of potentially the gospel in their life. Maybe it's a conflict at work where you're in the right and you could bring this up through the chain of command and justify your, your case. And there might be times to do that or if it's a particular issue that has importance not just for you but for others. It's an ethical issue. But there might be times that you say, you know, I'm going to set aside that right because I'm going to continue to live and work with these people, and I want to keep the door open for the gospel. It might have something to do with food or drink in a different way. There, there was a young man that our family befriended from, from Nepal, and he was Hindu. And we would have him over to our home sometimes, and 
it asked him, you know, what, is there any dietary things we should be aware of? And he just said, no, anything except we, we don't eat beef. Uh, and you might know that that's uh, considered kind of a, a sacred animal that they, that they wouldn't eat. Now, my wife grew up on a cattle ranch, right? And there's <laughs> cows around all the time. Our freezer is always full of beef. And, but, you know, of course, we didn't have beef that night. We could have. We'd be free to. But we set aside that right because we want to minister to this, this guy. We want to show him compassion and look for ways to share the gospel with him and show him care. So what other ways are, we, are there that we can set aside our rights, not insist upon them for the sake of the gospel? Let's pray.